You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, we are back, and I am uh, rejoined um, by someone who I think you guys all uh, really appreciate because I hear from you when she comes out. Sarah Posner, of course, an investigative journalist, author. She's largely responsible her research and writing for um, bringing to light and explaining to America this fusion of Christian. My producer told me I was going to be talking to Sarah Posner, but here I am talking to Laura Bella. Well, that is a, you know what? That is a fabulous piece of news. Laura Laura Bella. Sarah Posner um, does wonderful work. So. Oh, okay. Well, I'll talk to Sarah another time, but here you are. And, and, um, Laura's also been with us a few times. So um, uh, she's a fabulous journalist in Iowa who's um, worked the Bleeding Heartland. uh, You should read it if you want to know what's going on in that state. And, you know, Laura, I was kind of hoping I'd get to talk to you, even though it's a surprise, um, because the presidential race has begun and it's unfolding right there in your state. You have Ron DeSantis coming there doing crazy things. You have ministers putting their hands on Donald Trump saying, you know, um, you're going, you're going to take us all to heaven. Like, oh, my gosh, it started. Tell us about it. It has. And I mean, not only do we have, I think, eight presidential candidates today or at Joni Ernst's annual fundraiser that she calls the Roast and Ride. It's basically almost everyone you've heard of and a few people you haven't heard of other than Donald Trump. Uh, he's about the only one missing there. But we also just finished our legislative session a few weeks ago. And just on Thursday, our governor took final action on signing all of the last bills. So the the Republican-controlled legislature just continues to drive the state into the ground. But the presidential race, I mean, I think it's quite interesting. I've been a skeptic about Ron DeSantis, honestly. I didn't think that he could really make a race of it with Donald Trump. However, he has gotten, DeSantis has gotten a lot of Iowa political endorsements, and that's unusual for that to come so early in the race because Iowa politicians tend to keep their powder dry a little bit and endorse presidential candidates kind of closer to the caucus, but there are already more than three dozen state legislators who have endorsed Ron DeSantis, and that's even more than I think about 18 or 19 who have endorsed Donald Trump. So, and I know, you know, politician endorsements are not necessarily, they don't, they certainly don't control how the rank and file votes, but I think that that's already communicated to a lot of Iowa Republicans that in effect, even though it's a crowded field, in effect, this is a two-person race between Trump and DeSantis. That's how I see it shaping up. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think it's going to be hard for Donald Trump, I do, to win from, you know, while he is being, uh, while he's on trial for um, uh, many things, including, I believe, uh, uh, Georgia and maybe even the federal case on uh, selling, maybe selling classified documents so so it's a it's a fair bet to hedge your hedge your bets in iowa to say ron DeSantis should be the guy but it mean it's two sides of the same right because yeah because the drama i mean for the trump diehard the the most cultist trump followers they think that all of these criminal cases are just like the deep state persecuting Trump. And many of them believe that everybody takes classified documents and it's not a big deal. So it's tricky. And and DeSantis, and not only him, but some of the other candidates, 
they're trying to make these vague statements like we need to look forward and not backward, but you don't beat Donald Trump unless you really take on Donald Trump. And I have yet to hear anybody make a strong case against Donald Trump. And when he starts out with so many people following him, I just think it's going to be hard. I agree with you that it's challenging to see how he could maybe win a general election, but the the Iowa Republican caucus goers are just so far out of the mainstream. Well, look, I mean, the choice but to me, whether it's Ron or Don, it's the same problem. They're contemptuous of the institutions that keep our democracy afloat. They are autocrats to their core. And um, DeSantis' announcement that he will somehow destroy what he calls woke America, I mean, it, mm-hmm. and he makes this announcement standing in front of a battleship to, as if to say, I am at war with my fellow citizens. And you know what? I'm going to win that war. I'm sorry. You, you know, we need somebody to bring the country together, not say, I, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to put half the country in prison. That's just utter nonsense. Disqualified. Well, and I, I, I mean, <laughs> sitting here from a red state, I find it deeply concerning. Everything that Ron DeSantis does to pander to the conservative base, I think our own governor, Kim Reynolds, is watching and she has said several times publicly that Republican governors are very competitive with one another. They like to outdo one another. And in fact, she never pushed for any of the anti-LGBTQ bills until other Republican-led states started passing the ban on gender-affirming care for our children. And yep. in, in DeSantis's case, the Don't Say Gay, which you know he passed, the Don't Say Gay for grades K through three. And so the Iowa legislature... Because the governor requested it, passed it now K through sixth grade. So no instruction on gender identity or sexual orientation from kindergarten through sixth grade, if you can imagine. I mean, it's and so, like I said, the, the ban on transgender girls participating in sports, all of those ideas came from other states that our governor doesn't want to be seen as being outdone by these other conservatives. So it makes me worry because I'm sure that DeSantis has more tricks up his sleeve to try to appeal to the far right in Iowa. So, Laura, that's a good um, opportunity for me to ask you about the recently finished legislative session. Just like tick through, uh, you know, the bad policies that, that have sort of been put in all these bills. It was so bad. This is the seventh year of a Republican trifecta in Iowa. So keep in mind that they've already passed a lot of really harmful legislation. And occasionally people say, well, they'll run out of bad ideas, right? They've already destroyed public sector unions. They've already passed a very strict abortion ban. They've passed, they've relaxed, you know, they've done away with permits for concealed carry. But this year they did so much more because they had larger majorities and they were able to get through a lot of bills that they hadn't been able to pass before in the Iowa House. So I would say there were three main areas, first of all, in the area of public education, a sweep of sweeping massive school voucher program that is probably going to bankrupt our state, but is going to incentivize people pulling their kids out of public school and going into private school, and it's going to take a lot of funding away from public schools to private schools. So that's the first big thing. Also, um, in the, the public education arena, a lot of policies, I, what I would consider micromanaging policies for schools uh, and, and discriminatory policies, so a bathroom bill that affects school 
not only bathrooms, but locker rooms and other facilities that uh, discriminates against transgender people. A, a provision, like I said, don't say gay or trans in grades kindergarten through sixth grade. Also, the library book bans that you're seeing in many parts of the country, that was also passed here. So any books that have a depiction of a sex act, and not necessarily explicit or graphic, but basically any description of a sex act. So that's going to include a lot of classic literature. That's out of school libraries as of when that bill goes into effect. They also passed uh, damage caps for medical malpractice lawsuits and lawsuits for people who were grievously injured in a trucking or commercial vehicle accident. They passed, a, um, in addition, as I mentioned, the ban on gender-affirming care for Iowans under age 18. That was just part of continuing the anti-LGBTQ agenda. They also cracked down. I think we talked about this because it was still pending the last time I was on your show. They passed a bill that's going to kick thousands of people off federal food assistance and Medicaid. It's a very strict new asset test for people on uh, food assistance and when similar when similar legislation was passed in Pennsylvania, many, many households lost their benefits. Also, a new verification requirements for Medicaid that's going to be difficult for people to comply with. When that was done in Arkansas, a lot of people lost their Medicaid. Even though they were eligible, they just couldn't jump through the paperwork hoop. So also, they relaxed child labor regulations. Uh, they, I mean, it's like I could go on for a long time. They restricted the state auditor's authority. That's the only Democrat remaining in statewide office is, is Rob Sand. He barely survived the 2022 election. And so uh, they immediately passed a bill to restrict his ability to investigate what's going on in, in state government agencies. So it's really just an assault on uh on good government, really, at every level. I, there are a lot of other things they did, but those are probably the lowest points. There, It was also a terrible legislative session for Iowans with disabilities. There were many bills, including that food assistance bill, but also other provisions that are just going to be particularly harmful for Iowans who uh, are permanently disabled and are not going to be able to get the help they need. Well, I, it's going to be hard. I mean... What, what? How is this impacting, you know, the lives of Iowans in seven years? Are you know of Republican rule? I, you know, are Iowans uh, compared to the states around them doing better or worse? Well, economically, we're not doing better. I think that our recovery has been slower than most of the states around us. Certainly, Minnesota, which has just had about the most progressive legislative session in history. They almost since the New Deal. I was reading a list of everything their Democratic trifecta passed. It was amazing, and they're also growing faster. So, I, I think one of the challenges with the uh, the things that the Republican trifecta has done is that a lot of Iowans don't feel like their day-to-day lives are affected by it. And I think it's going to be difficult for people to connect the dots. I mean, this school voucher program, that's going to be a big problem for public schools, but it's not going to happen tomorrow, right? It'll take a few years probably for the impact to be most deeply felt, in, especially in the smaller school districts. And so by the time it gets to the point of schools having to cut programs and cut teachers or maybe school districts having to consolidate, it'll be difficult to draw a straight line through to what the legislative session did. And similarly, like the child labor bill. Well, a lot of people think, oh, well, I worked when I was 14. You know, it was no big deal. But they they just extended the hours. They extended the dangerous occupations that teenagers can work in. And what's going to happen is that the most disadvantaged groups 
are going to feel the most pressure to have uh, students working longer and longer hours. It's going to interfere with their education. Uh, there might be more workplace injuries for youth. But again, like most people aren't going to be directly confronted with those impacts. So that's always challenging. And I don't really, I don't have the answer to. Again, I mean, gender affirming care, I saw an estimate there are probably, we're talking about in the dozens, maybe over a hundred, but certainly not a thousand Iowa transgender teens who are receiving gender-affirming care right now. I mean, it's a very small number. It might not even be a hundred, but if it's over a hundred, it's not by much. And so, and yet a lot of legislative energy was just spent punching down on this very small marginalized group. But it's not something that uh, that most Iowans will say, oh, you know, hey, this really affects my life. But if it, it does affect you, that's life-ruining. I mean, I've certainly heard of families who are planning to leave the state because of that, because they don't feel that it's safe for their child. And similarly, like the medical malpractice caps, well, most people, fortunately, will never be the victim of medical malpractice. But if you have a life-altering injury or your loved one does, I mean, you're not going to be able to recover as much as under the previous law. And it's just not something that, that it'll be invisible to most Iowans. So I think maybe, that's a challenge. Laura, maybe, but the that. reason why we have these malpractice laws is that it acts as a deterrent so people are more careful. And without them, you may see more. Right. Not, may, may, you say some people grievously hurt, but a lot more people hurt in other ways. Um, and and also, in, I mean, I think insurance companies are going to be less likely to settle, even the smaller claims and injuries. Yep, they're less likely yep. to settle because people won't yep. be able to go to court. Yep. I mean, they can go to All court, right. but they could never recover what they were really owed. Yep. It's going to be a problem. All right. So, mm-hmm. so we're in Pride Month, and um, uh, in many states, the large LGBTQ communities and and their even larger group of friends are celebrating what it means uh, to allow diversity in America, to allow people to express who they are in public and be full citizens in our democracy. You guys are uh, sort of heading the other way. And I just, but I don't, I am guessing that the percentage of gay Iowans is not different than the percentage of gay Illinois. So, like, how is how is this? Mm, are people saying like maybe we aren't this bad? But you really, I mean, if, do people if, really think this government reflects the values of the state? I have a lot of conversations about this because the LGBTQ community has always been very supportive of my work at Bleeding Heartland, going back to some of the earliest years in the late 2000s when we had an Iowa Supreme Court ruling that cleared the path for same-sex marriage, and we were the only the third state to have marriage equality. So it was a big deal, and in fact, there were couples who moved to Iowa or moved back to Iowa because we had a legal marriage in 2009. So it, and I'm, I'm talking to you right now from Iowa City, which is probably the most progressive community in Iowa. And I would say that there are still a lot of gay-friendly spaces in Iowa. I mean, Des Moines and Iowa City and Ames and several other communities. I mean, there are affirming spaces, but it's uh, the problem is that the state government, the atmosphere is so negative, and a lot of people are afraid right now. I mean, they, they attack the gender-affirming care. Right now, the law only applies to Iowans under age 18, but if you've seen what they're 
trying to do in Florida and other states that would affect uh, people, transgender people of any age. And the bathroom bill affects people of any age and is not going to only affect transgender Iowans. But as I was just talking with someone who's bisexual, and she says basically every lesbian can tell you a story about being harassed in a bathroom because somebody said she didn't belong there. And so there is definitely a feeling here that it is not the welcoming place that many of us imagined 10 or 15 years ago. And I think people are really at a loss on how to respond to that. But there still are a lot of Pride Month celebrations around Iowa. Good. Uh, I think that there still be celebrations, although they may be masking a bigger underlying problem. Um, And um, let me change the subject and ask a different one. I, I, I thought of Iowa last week when the Supreme Court uh, made a terrible decision on wetlands. Um, I oh, think you're yeah. going to see an enormous increase in pollution in the state. Iowa is like the, the you know, poster child for why that's a bad idea. It, it really is. And the legal director of the Iowa chapter of the Sierra Club wrote a guest post from my website about that and about that ruling. It really was terrible. I think it, in some ways in the far in the western states, it might be even more devastating. But just to, to recap, so the Clean Water Act has had an interpretation going back really since the Reagan administration, an interpretation about not only wetlands, uh, not only waterways, but adjacent to the waters of the U.S. So the waters of the U.S., include adjacent wetlands. And this case was related to how do you define what's adjacent? And so the Supreme Court majority greatly narrowed the scope of what counts as a wetland. And so what it means is if you have an area that maybe is a wetland for part of the year, but at some times of the year, it's dry. So it's not continuously a wetland, which is what a lot of places are like, especially in the West where it's drier. There, there are a lot of seasonal wetlands, and those are basically not going to have Clean Water Act protection anymore. I will say that Iowa has never probably fully enforced the Clean Water Act, and this has been an issue. I'm fairly active in the Iowa environmental community, and it's been something that we've struggled with for many years, but because the agriculture is such a big industry in the state that I don't even think under the previous law that the Clean Water Act was properly enforced. But now you add on to it that many of these wetlands, now the Supreme Court has declared that they're not going to get that protection, and it's going to be even worse. So, yeah, we're all bracing ourselves for that. But, I mean, agriculture is king, and it's very difficult to do anything in Iowa state government that the big ag interests don't want. Okay. Well, crazy. Absolutely crazy. Um, I guess I want to go back a little bit to understand Kim Reynolds a little better. Is she, Mm -hmm. where is she in all this presidential stuff going on in your state? It's interesting. She has, well, first of all, she hasn't endorsed anybody, and she has indicated that she doesn't plan to endorse anybody before the caucuses. And similarly, Senator Chuck Grassley and Joni Ernst, not likely to endorse before the caucuses. They really want candidates to keep coming here. I hear a lot of people talk about Kim Reynolds as a possible VP candidate. I have never believed that she has any ambition other than being governor. I think that she likes the current job. She gets to do whatever she wants. The legislature is afraid of her. And she has 11 grandchildren who all live in Iowa. So I don't really think she aspires to serve in Washington. I do think that Joni Ernst, however, could be on short lists for people's VPs. I think that Kim Reynolds likes the attention 
And she likes to be talked about as somebody who might be a running mate. She likes to be talked about as one of the top conservative governors. And as I mentioned, she's very competitive. So she wants to do, if another state lowered their tax rate, she wants to lower it. And if another state punched down on transgender kids, she wants to do that. She's sending 100 Iowa National Guard troops to the Texas border for the entire month of August, and she's sending a bunch of state troopers down there for the entire month of September. I mean, you know, Iowa, (laughs) I mean, to say that what's happening at the southern border is such a great threat to Iowans that it merits sending National Guard troops down there is, is kind of absurd, but that's the kind of pandering, and that's clearly playing to a national audience, I think. And that's something that, the, that Kim Reynolds just announced last week. But it's hard to get a read on her for something because she pretty much stopped having press conferences. I mean, she hasn't, she's held, I think, about two press conferences in the last year. And very occasional, occasionally people can catch her and ask a few questions after some other event. But she really doesn't make herself very available. So it's hard to know where she's coming from. But like I said, she, she enjoys being, she's gone to a number of the presidential candidate events. They always say nice things about her. She likes the attention from that. And you said, I think, earlier in our conversation, you characterized the um, Republican caucus goers in the state. Just talk about them and, and how much they are truly a reflection of the state more broadly or not. But that's what they're so, like. So as I would say, and for people I know, Illinois is a primary state, but going to a caucus is a much bigger time investment than voting in a primary. And so what ends up happening is that in both parties, the committed activists who go to a caucus usually are not exactly at the center. I mean, I would say the, lip, the Democratic caucus goers are more liberal than probably the average Iowa Democrat, and that's why Joe Biden did so poorly here. And conversely, the Iowa Republican caucus goers are very conservative. The social conservative block is very powerful. That's why Ted Cruz actually defeated Donald Trump in the 2016 Iowa caucuses. A lot of people don't remember that, but uh, Mike Huckabee won the 2008 caucuses. Rick Santorum came out of nowhere to just edge out Mitt Romney in 2012. So social conservatives, a very important block. There are still country club Republicans and Republican moderates in Iowa, but I would say that uh, they definitely don't have the upper hand anymore. Many of them have become no party voters. I was just not that long ago speaking with somebody and I, I didn't realize she's not a Republican. I mean, she used to literally, you know, I mean, she was very, very active in her county Republicans and now she considers herself uh, no party, but she's pro-choice, you know, but they're, I mean, the, the moderate Republicans have basically no representation in the legislature. They're not a block that anybody is courting in the presidential race. I mean, the presidential candidates are jumping over each other, trying to show how conservative they are. Yeah. All right. In the time we have left, um, in Chicago, at least, and maybe just because it's such shocking video, there's been a lot of news about a high rise in Davenport that sort of collapsed. In oh, the middle. yes. And, and so first, um, um, t- t- tell us about the victims and the survivors and tell us about what happened, what we know about it. And is this a, is this a, what leads to a building collapsing other than, you know, regulatory failure? I mean, why, how is that possible? 
absolute systemic failures on every level. And I have to say that the Quad City Times has done a tremendous job reporting that story. It happened in Davenport, which is one of the Quad Cities. Iowa Public Radio has also done some really good reporting. So Iowa has some of the oldest housing stock in the country. And there are a lot of towns along the Mississippi River and some of the old industrial towns that have many old buildings like the one that was called the Davenport that fell, uh, partly collapsed last weekend. And the, the problem is that the type of construction they were using, I mean, it wouldn't be up to code today. But we still are using a lot of these buildings. And there are now that the city of Davenport has released a lot of records. I mean, there were clear signals in many of the inspection reports that there were big problems with the building. There were even uh, as recent, like the day before the building collapsed, somebody called, it was, even though it was a holiday weekend, he called 911 because he felt he saw a part of the wall bowing and he was so concerned that he wanted to get through to the, somebody at the city. There was a tenant who called and the fire department came out, but they were only on site for about five minutes and they turned around and left. So absolute systemic failures to recognize the serious problems in that building. And I think there was somebody who was a former reporter from the Quad City Times was saying that there was a different building that was basically condemned and and residents uh, had to leave and find other housing some years ago. And that caused a lot of upset in the community that people were displaced from their homes. So I'm wondering, I don't know that, but this is my speculation, that that made the city officials hesitate to condemn this building. But the the owner, I mean, one thing that's concerning is that the person who owns this building owns other properties in Davenport and clearly wasn't doing a good job maintaining this one. And I think the number of old buildings of that style, that type of brick construction that is not up to code now, I mean, it's something that a lot of Iowa cities are going to have to grapple with. But there are three people unaccounted for, and I think at this point, uh, probably presumed that. I know that they're still looking through the rubble for survivors, but there are three people who have, were living in the building who haven't been seen since last Sunday. And mm. it's, just, it's very concerning. And, yeah, of course, many, many others who lost all of their possessions because they yeah. haven't been able to get back into the building. So I know the Red Cross is on the scene and there are local aid groups. How many fatalities? Uh, they don't know of any, but I think the three who are still unaccounted for are the, possibly presumed yeah. fatalities at this point. Yeah, I don't think yeah. there have been any confirmed fatalities. Okay, well, that's good. Yeah, but it's always when you yeah, see a high-rise Yeah, it happened during the day. Down. I mean, if it had happened at night, it happened during on a, a day yeah. over the weekend when a lot of people were out. If it had happened overnight, there would have been many more fatalities if everybody had been at home. Well, thank God. I mean, but I think if, you know, a building in, in Florida collapsed, and this is collapsed, it's just, you know, we have building inspection regimes for a reason. And when they fail, you have to ask, like, what's the government doing? And, and will people be held accountable? Yeah, somebody who was in the, I forgot her exact title, but somebody in the Davenport city government already resigned over this this week. I mean, it was an absolute Mm -hmm. failure, and I don't know how you could call it anything other than that. There were actually a few former tenants who have been speaking to the Quad City Times who moved out just even in the weeks prior to this happening because there were huge cracks in their walls and they they didn't feel safe there. And so yeah. when when that's happening, and one of them had filed a complaint with the city, but then after the person left the building, the complaint was closed because the person wasn't a, wasn't a current in the building. Anymore. In the building. Yeah. So wow. just like I said, wow. an absolute regulatory failure and something that I think other 
other towns in Iowa and elsewhere better start looking into this because there are many, many buildings like this one. Well, that, that then if that's the case, then your state government has work to do to, you know, make to yes. make and, and I, nothing you've told me gives me any confidence they're going to do it. Well, they don't. They sure don't do a lot to help the cities. I mean, they just they pass a property tax mm-hmm. bill this year that's going to undermine cities by cutting into their re- local government revenue. So, I mean, it's not, I don't think that the cavalry is going to be riding in from the Iowa legislature. I think a lot of the the majority of the legislators represent rural areas. I mean, in the majority party, rather represent rural areas and small towns, and I don't think they see this as their problem.